Welcome to the Florida Specifier Podcast. This is Brett Cyphers here with my co-host, Ryan Matthews. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please be sure to hit subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Florida Specifier online at floridaspecifier.com. It's easy to do, and we think you'll enjoy all the ways you can read, watch, listen, and learn right at your fingertips. We can't thank you enough for the support. All right, enough with the throat clearing. Brett, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing pretty well. Obviously, we're down here in Marco Island, which is great. Enjoying it, but I'm also enjoying as it starts to close down, sir. It's usually a bit of a sprint at first and then a marathon almost as you get through it. But I, I kind of wanted to ask you, you know, you've been coming down to Marco Island, I think you said before this was about your 21st year or so. Something like that. What do you think about the evolution of the conference? I mean, obviously things have changed since the late 90s, early 2000s. Sure. Yeah, I think for me, it's less about the conference itself, which I've always recognized as a place for folks that do what we do to really have some deeper conversations about issues we work on. Everyone gets tied up in their day-to-day. They don't have a chance to pause and really have real conversations with folks that they work with on across the state on all these issues. And for me, I think the biggest difference is going from in government and coming to this from a a different perspective or being on panels, things like that, where now my role has shifted a bit. And so instead of a lot of listening, I find myself doing a lot of talking. You've gone from being chased to uh, chasing. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) There There is a significant difference coming down here in a government role and just sort of having folks tug at your sleeve every couple minutes to say, hey, I just need five minutes, I just need five minutes. And I think the setting makes that a little bit easier, right? Because as you said, you're in jeans, you're in a button down, and maybe you've had a drink or two, and, and you're happy to be here. So some of those conversations are a lot more palatable. Yeah, it's a good environment for that, for relaxing and having those real conversations. Even though it's a switch, uh, I'm still enjoying the heck out of it, that's for sure. Well, I'm glad to hear it. If I ask you, what's the most ambitious piece of work, environmental legislation, in the last several years, what would you say? It has to be House Bill 1379 for me, uh, and that's why I'm so glad we're going to have the bill sponsored here to help us understand where it came from and where it's going. We're so fortunate to be joined by Representative Toby Oberdorf. He's the chairman of the Joint Administrative Procedures Committee and vice chair of the House Judiciary Committee. He's also a member of two other committees that will be of particular interest to our listeners, the Ag and Natural Resources Appropriations Committee and the Water Quality Supply and Treatment Subcommittee. And he's an environmental professional in real life, so he's definitely on the right podcast. Representative Overdorf, welcome to the Florida Specifier Podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself in District 85. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here today and having me as a part of this podcast. It's honestly a great honor to be here, so thank you for that. So District 85, it covers the northern half, if you will, of Martin County and the southern portion of St. Lucie County. It's one of the fastest growing districts that are out there currently, and we have a tremendous amount of folks that are moving in from all over the place, as you can imagine, just like Florida. And we have a pretty diverse group of folks and a variety of languages, everything. A great Haitian population to a growing Italian population to a variety of others that are coming in and emigrating from New York, Ohio, Illinois. So it's a, it's a great population, and we have gone from a largely a Democrat district and a little bit purple to now solidly red. And it's been a fantastic district for me, and I've lived there for, oh, just about 12 years in that district. 
So what originally enticed you to run for office? Well, my dad and I went back and forth a lot. Dad was a Navy pilot and for 30 years and did his service there. And I was never able to do public service coming out of college. Actually was medically DQ'd from the Marine Corps and I have no idea why to this day literally, but that's yeah. that's the federal government for you. So anyway, we would go back and forth and talk on a variety of things and a lot of issues. And he looked at me one day and said, hey, you know, why don't you put your money where your mouth is and get into the game. And I had been working on a variety of local legislation with local government and the capacity as a consultant. So it was a kind of a natural fit then to move through. And I had gone through local leadership and then uh, Leadership Florida as well. So had some great exposure statewide, and, and all of a sudden it was time to go and, and get in the game. As Ryan mentioned, you're the sponsor of House Bill 1379, which, among other things, creates the Indian River Lagoon Protection Program. Given that your district borders the southern extent of the lagoon, the bill's success must have a significant importance for you and your constituents back home. Can you talk about that program a little bit and what the bill does? Certainly. I mean, 1379 is, as you're very well aware, a very all-encompassing bill. It looks at a variety of things, and one of which, of course, is the Indian River Lagoon. It looks at the TMDLs, BMAPs, the other things that have really been dormant, if you will, for the last 20 years. Uh, I have somewhat of a vocal constituency back home, and they have been pushing folks in Tallahassee, to say the least, and rightly so. In 2018, there was the lost summer that they refer to, and where we had some major issues with algae and other things that happened within the St. Lucie River and, and other areas there. So rightly so, they're concerned about it. And the bill itself goes into everything from looking at the levels of, of various things that are going into the system itself. It looks at, for the first time, we're really doing some monitoring. We're doing some continuing upon the reviews of the TMDLs and actually then taking some action as well. And as you know, having some folks that back home that are a bit active, shall we say. This is something that we've, we've really needed to do. And going in and doing a review on this with some of them, they, they really weren't sure of, of actually what the bill was. And were a bit surprised that this bill had passed and they had been given some information that really didn't match up with what I was telling them. Yeah, can you talk about some of those misconceptions? I mean, you hear a lot of things, you hear about what you're not doing or things that may be in a bill that aren't there. Can you talk about some of those misconceptions and how you worked around it? Well, sure. I mean, first of all, they really were not even aware of Bobby Payne that I'll have his work on Senate Bill 712 and brought forward so much of that where there was uh, required monitoring for a lot of these issues. They were even weren't aware of that. And they said, we still need monitoring. We have to have enforcement with this. Well, enforcement's there. And the requirements to have DACs do the actual monitoring, do the and review of BMPs. And BMPs are not a voluntary thing anymore. It's a requirement. And by the way, if you don't have the BMP, then you have to go to a water quality side, which is DEP. The issue is manpower. We don't have enough manpower, specifically when you have two people that are doing all of these inspections for properties that are uh, anywhere from 20 acres or more. And then you look at an individual farm as 20 acres can take as much time for an inspection as a farm that's 1,000 acres. So you have a, a lot of issues there, and then if they don't get inspected, they go to DEP. Well, DEP doesn't have the manpower to then put out all these water quality issues. And so it really boils down to a manpower issue rather than a requirement for inspection. And so that's one of the misnomers. The other misnomer is that on 1379, that is an area that they didn't realize we're actually doing monitoring now. And that monitoring is required for the first time in basically 20 years, we're actually doing something with the TMDLs. We're actually doing something with BMAPs. And so now, with local government being required to now have 
various restoration projects that will deal specifically with TMDLs and then having to lay those out as well, they were not aware of any of that. And part of that is the septic tanks as well. I describe it as kind of the end of traditional septic tanks, at least new ones, in the Inner River Lagoon area. Can you talk about those new requirements and what that future holds moving forward with this statute? Absolutely. As you're aware, we'll, we'll probably never have a day where there's no septic tanks, but you know, certainly it doesn't make sense to run a sewer line out to a 20-acre parcel with one unit on it. But that being said, the requirements now are that local government has to plan out for 10 years at a time what will happen with their sewer lines, their septic conversion, and then also new sewer plants and capacity associated with that. So I think when you're dealing with that, it also then sets up a fund that will allow for homeowners to actually then utilize some monies to do the conversion. They don't have to worry about paying it all up front. And of course, there's, there's an application process with that. But it's a, I think it's a real positive overall. You look down at the Keys and look at Monroe and you see the, the positives that happened when they made such a, a concerted effort to remove all the septic tanks down there. Now, all of a sudden, you're not having the same issues. Calerpa's not everywhere on the reefs. You're not having these massive issues with, again, algae blooms down there. So hopefully this is something and a good way to deal with phosphorus and nitrogen. Additionally, because of House Bill Senate 712, we have new rules that are associated with septic tanks so that if you have a new septic tank that's going in, there's additional requirements for the reduction of phosphorus and nitrogen within that as well. So all of those things I think are positives. And, and I know there's going to be some people out there saying, well, I love my septic tank. Well, look, you can keep your septic tank, except for the time then it fails. Once it fails, then you'll have to do the conversion over if, in fact, there is a uh, sewer line out in front. So. I think it's something that you know I'm excited about. You know, it's one of those provisions in a 95-page bill that had so many things in it, and not only the Indian River Lagoon, not only the septic tanks, but now also a huge amount of money that we're able to do for land purchases and, and preservation as well. Septic tanks in, in particular have always been sort of that third rail environmental issue. And, and I think the bill really does a tremendous job of, of balancing private property rights like you discussed, but with responsible septic tank ownership. And, and that's something that I think that has really changed the narrative or the conversation, at least within the legislature, because for so long, anytime someone brought up septic tanks, you immediately had sort of the, the private property rights fight. But I want to go back just briefly to the mystery medical DQ. Is that what led led you to be an environmental consultant, or did you always know that you'd be dealing with the environment in one shape or form? I came out of college and didn't get into the military. I had always wanted to be doing something within diving, within the marine environment. And so I went from my undergrad, which was Union College in Schenectady, New York, and I moved to uh, Cape Cod to try to get into Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And I ended up getting a job selling advertising for a senior magazine in the winter in Cape Cod. It was a horrible job, let me just say that. <laughs> but it paid the rent, I got through. Eventually a friend called me and said, hey, there's a great job as an intern down in the Florida Keys. And would you like to teach diving and biology in the Florida Keys? I said, I'm on my way. So up. literally uh, signed up, was accepted, went down there. And my first day in Florida was the day after Hurricane Andrew. So I drove literally through Homestead to get to my job on Big Pine. So I saw Florida at its worst and then got to Big Pine and saw Florida at its best. And that introduced me then in a little bit more into the environmental world. I ended up at Florida Atlantic University as a uh, master's student there and ended up working on the restoration of the Kissimmee River. 
And once I was done with my degree there, it was either go back and work for the district or go into the private side. The private side paid significantly more. Starting a young family, that was where I went. So been there ever since. Yeah, emerging problems. And one of those, obviously, is PFAS and PFOA and other forever chemicals, if you will. You've, you've spent a lot of time on that subject matter. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then where does the Florida legislature go under the guise of there's obviously litigation on a national level occurring? What can the Florida legislature do to sort of be proactive as it comes to PFAS? So the Bellwether case actually was is my hometown, in Stewart, Florida. And we just won a major, major case. And of course, that is now setting the precedent for PFAS across the entire country. Layers and layers and layers could be dealt with. We look at ways that we have the matters of great governmental concern, which was a bill that came up a couple of years ago where the attorney general may then step in, much like a class action case, but she would be the, or he in the future, would then be the person that oversees this. So I think that's something that may end up happening. You saw with opioids, everything was so far down the path, but yet the uh, Attorney General stepped in there. The Volkswagen case was another one where she stepped in, and now we have an administration of monies going forward. So with PFAS itself, I think it's something that you are going to be absolutely flabbergasted at how much, not only the exposure in our national environment, but how much each and every one of us has it in our bodies right now. There's been several studies done. The only place they ever found that doesn't have PFAS in the bloodstream was with some Korean war soldiers and it was their blood that they had taken before going into battle when they were going through boot camp. That was the only blood sample they've ever found that actually has no PFAS in it in the world. So wow. that's something that it's a bit scary, understanding if there's ways then we can deal with it. I would say if you have an opportunity, invest in active carbon right now. And that'll be something that we'll, I'm sure, be dealing with a lot. This is an early session year. Ideas for bills come pretty fast and thick. Are there bills that you're already teeing up for January? There's elements of bills, certainly. I've got a variety of non-environmental things that we're going to be looking at. But in the environmental space, one of the areas that I'd like to focus on is pharmaceuticals. The Tarpon and Bonefish Trust did a fantastic study and looked at some ways that, in fact, we were seeing pharmaceuticals being introduced into the environment again, and this was then being uptaken by sportfish, et cetera. So I think this is something that we need to be dealing with as a retrofit on our water treatment plants, one of them before they discharge. I think that's something that we're going to be looking at. Also, phosphorus and nitrogen, the legacy side of that. So how can we deal with that? And that's by additional mechanical removal from some of the larger systems that we have out there, and that would then take it out of the system, and potentially some appropriations for additional dredging. Bridges are, are a great transportation mechanism, but they could also be a fantastic place to create a sump, if you will, for sediments that are going downstream. And you could excavate the area there, create these areas that then would provide an opportunity to, again, collect muck and other things like that. So those are some things that we're, we're looking at and some possibilities. Of course, I can guarantee you that through the governor's office, through our environmental team, we're going to be certainly looking at some additional things there. And I think there's also some successes that we've seen with seagrass and some items there. I think there's some emerging technologies, again, and then finally looking at the connectors between homes and the actual sewer lines, the lateral line pipe. That's something that's been kicked around the legislature for quite some time. For whatever reason, we haven't been able to finalize that, but I think we will hopefully this year. So you're a practitioner. You know, obviously, as an environmental consultant, I think one of the massive advantages is in a part-time legislature, folks who don't necessarily participate in the profession have your knowledge and background to lean on. 
I can imagine, though, that some of your colleagues come to you with some ideas just randomly. Hey, Rep Overdorf, I got an idea. Why don't you do this in Tallahassee? How often does that actually happen? Quite a bit, and I'm grateful because I, I don't want somebody to file a bill or to do something that then they get all kinds of heat for, or it's a repetition, all of a sudden they have a bill slot that really doesn't do anything or is going to go anywhere. And yet, there's a lot of folks that have great ideas and are looking at things in a different way that hasn't been done before. So I can really appreciate that. I'm grateful that folks are seeking me out for some advice on those things. And I think that's one of the greatest things about serving in the House is that you start to find those people that can, in fact, be the people you're sounding board and go to and and get some different legislation. We're grateful for your time today. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you down the road. Sounds great. Look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks to you all for listening to the Florida's Best Fire podcast. We really do appreciate your support. Production of this podcast by Carl Sorn and David Barfield at Lonely Fox Studios. A special thank you goes out to Bagels and Biscuits, who are kind enough to let us use their music for the show. Check them out wherever you get your music. If you have an idea for an article for the Florida Specifier or a topic for this podcast, please be sure to let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next time as we continue to delve into the issues, policy, and people that environmental professionals and policymakers want to know about. And that's it. For Ryan Matthews, I'm Brett Cyphers. We'll see you next time. Thank you.